I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal. Small, meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Amanda Clute is the editor-in-chief of Eater, a publication covering the ins and outs of dining and food in America and around the world. Through original reporting, long-form journalism, maps, and guides, reviews, and video, Eater informs its audience on the latest news, tells them where to eat and drink, and highlights important issues facing the world of restaurants. Before rising to editor-in-chief, Amanda was the editorial director of Eater, and before that, the editor of its New York site. She has contributed to Lucky Peach, Cherry Bomb, The Guardian, and others. Wow. And I have to tell you, I love your weekly wrap-up on Eater. Thank you. It's really great. I mean, it really, first of all, what's wonderful to me, it's snarky Mm -hmm. and sharp, and, um, and you're not holding back. Yes. Well, that's always been my my thing. And that, well, that's what's always fun about Eater is that you get to be a little a little snarky. A little snarky. Yeah. But it's great. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that thing you did with Pete Wells and Local. Oh, yeah. That was genius. I mean, it is just, you're, I, it's so spot on that, you know, granted the food might be terrible, but it's what they're trying to do is kind of interesting. And why is he going to these kind of places and reviewing them? Right. And he caught a lot of flack for that last week. And it was very controversial in the food world, whether he should do it or shouldn't do it and why and why not. So it's always, you know, it's interesting to link back to that. Well, if you think about the change in fast food casual, mm-hmm. I guess not fast food, fast casual. Fast casual, yeah. Um, is should those places be reviewed? I don't think it's worth his time necessarily to review it, especially for his audience. Um, if I were an Oakland critic and I wanted to talk about this this very buzzy opening that's coming to my neighborhood and, and what they're trying to do, I think that's worthy. I don't think Pete needs to fly across the country to tell his New York Times readership whether or not this buzzy chain is good or not. Right. Right. That's um, true. Like I understand why he did it. I'm sure he was reading all this hype and all this buzz, and we ran multi-thousand word long-form piece about the project and so did others so no one really talked about is this really good food on a day-to-day basis and he wanted to do that but I don't think he was the person who should be doing that yeah that's true I mean the one restaurant's really interesting out there is the one and I can't remember the name maybe you will Mm -hmm. and I actually wrote about them and and they reached out to me Mm -hmm. is that they have like the restaurant in Beverly Hills which is twice as much as the restaurant in Compton oh yes where they have um, comparable pricing yeah different pricing models yeah Yeah. and And I think that is super interesting I think it's super interesting just because this generation really has a lot of empathy for people that don't have as much as they do. Absolutely. And they want to buy less and be more cautious. They weren't going to complain that someone in Beverly Hills is paying twice as much for a salad than someone in Compton so that everyone can be healthy. Well, and the rent is twice as much, so why not? True. The rent is totally twice as much, Mm -hmm. so why not? So, which is really interesting. So, how long have you been at Eater now? It's going to be nine years in a month. Wow. (laughs) It's a little absurd, especially for people in my generation, I think, to be at a job for almost a decade. But there's no better place for me. So For what you're doing. Well, it's also been a very interesting evolution in terms of where you came from. Yeah, my timing was such that I've been able to grow with the publication, which I think is rare. And now you're really in this, you know, entrepreneurial job. I mean, Mm -hmm. Eater, as a startup, when you joined, how many people were there? 
Uh, half a dozen, maybe. I mean, we had some people out in California and Miami, so maybe a dozen people. Right, right. So you were really guiding the ship as, at Eater, you know, in many ways when you began. Yeah, I mean, and that was probably all of the curbed empire was a dozen people. So at Eater, we had a New York person, San Francisco, L.A., Miami. And that was pretty much it. And yeah, then Ben and Locke. Yeah, and then Ben and Locke. And yeah. that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you really had to be, you know, very entrepreneurial mm-hmm. to sort of grow that business and think about all the different things that you did from a media perspective. And, yep. you know, grabbing more customers and what was the content going to be about. And it, now it's it's grown into something so much more mature. Yeah. Um, and so did you always know that you were going to be in the, in the a writer in the media world? Is that something that always interests you was... I, I wanted to go into journalism, so I went to journalism school at NYU um, undergrad, but mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what I would end up doing at that point. I think even when I was graduating, I just wanted a job in media. You right. know, at that, when you're 22 <laughs> and, you know, you have kids, like, you just want to get a job right. and you don't really care where and it's wherever it leads you. Um, but food was in the back burner as an interest. Um, food, travel, the lifestyle space was something that interested me as well as doing hard news and being a beat reporter. So I think I, I was able to find a place where I could combine the two when I first started at Eater because the job was basically reporting, beat reporting, but about restaurants. So it wasn't reviews. It was this restaurant's opening, this restaurant's closing. Right. You have to call up sources. You're looking through city public files. So mm-hmm. there was that, there were both of those elements, which was really nice for me. Food. I mean, it's a cliche now, but it's a lens for everything. Mm-hmm. You can talk about family. You can talk about politics. You can talk about anything through the lens of food. So it's That's kind true. of universal in that way. And what have you seen, you know, in the, the past decade has been a really interesting decade in regards to the changes of food and also what you're reporting on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you're right. At the beginning, it was always about, you know, this restaurant's opening or this restaurant's closing. Yeah. Then what have you seen that has changed that you guys and that you ended up writing about that you wanted to do more pieces on? Yeah, I think there's a broader cultural conversation that we get to have now that we probably wouldn't have been able to have when I started before. Mm-hmm. Or it was very much talking to people who wanted to spend a lot of money eating out. So you want to know what is the hot restaurant that's opening on your block. And that's still a lot of what we do. It's still the service we provide. Like this is what's opening by your office or by your apartment. Um, But now we get to talk about much bigger things. Like what does it mean that, for example, the CEO of Carl's Jr. is going to be our labor secretary? And why could that be bad for millions of restaurant workers across the country? Like we get to have that conversation um, even the cultural phenomenon is sh- of chefs being lauded as these celebrities. Which is what does hilarious. that mean? What does it mean that everyone knows who David Chang is and that everyone knows who Renee Redzepi is and that they get to have massive influence over people? And Anthony Bourdain, too, his rise to fame is, I think, fascinating that he, whenever we write about him, we get so much traffic. Whenever we get him to talk about something political, everyone wants to read it. And it's so funny to me, like why? I, I mean, I, I love him. I follow him. I watch his shows. But the fact that he's become this cultural commentator because of his interest in food and travel. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I remember about, I want to say like four or five years ago, Drew Nierpont's restaurant that was down in Tribeca. I think it's mm-hmm. closed. Um, it was like, you know, the tweezer food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Corton. Yes, exactly. And we went there with a couple couples and he was there. And like the couples were like, oh my God, you know, it's Drew Nearpond. And it's just like, yeah, this is his restaurant. <laughs> of course okay. he's here. Of course he's here. This is his, his livelihood. Mm-hmm. But this concept that he was like this 
larger than life human being because he had opened up restaurants. Absolutely. It's fascinating. And that was definitely not, I mean, back when I started it, the celebrity was there. Like people knew who Mario Batali was because of the food network. But beyond that, these chefs weren't household names and they definitely weren't household names outside of a small subset of people. Right. Right. And, and it's not like these chefs Well, if you're on food network and you can figure out how to leverage your brand, Mm -hmm. like Mario has done, you know, from sauces to plates to cups, that's different. Mm -hmm. But the ones that are just doing fantastic food, they're not making that kind of bank. Mm -mm. No, (laughs) no. I mean, the restaurant industry is notoriously, not one to go into if you want to make a lot of money. No, like no. certain people can, but most people don't. No, they don't at all. Um, which is interesting. And so, when you guys look at long form, what are the kind of articles that you're thinking about when you are now taking a very different look at the food industry? Uh, we look at all kinds of things, and for me, it's important also to not get too serious because I think that can be the tendency when you're, especially when you're doing long pieces. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do this very serious, sad story about this thing that's happening. Um, and eater has always been a place for fun too, and a place to be a little absurd. So let's also take a deep look at Doritos and why people are obsessed with the new things that they're doing (laughs) or like all these pop cultural things that are kind of fun. Um, while also doing the really serious pieces. Um, I know we did a piece a couple months ago about the Buffalo chicken wing festival in Buffalo. (laughs) And so that was really fun. They also talked about what it means to be this Rust Belt city and their identity right now. But most of it was about, you know, the bobbing for wings in a big kiddie pool full of dressing. That's hilarious. So we want to be able to do that, but also do really serious stuff that I don't think a lot of people in the food world are doing um, outside of like the New Yorker when they decide to tackle food or New York Times Magazine when they tackle food. True. Well, what's fun to see is that Eater has now um, jumped the water mm-hmm. and is, you know, consistently covering other cities, Yeah, which is great because it also gives you a sort of interesting outlook um, into the trends that are happening mm-hmm. across the globe. So what are the things that you're seeing that are different, you know, from maybe over in Europe to here or where you're seeing the whole industry flying? I mean, with... With restaurant trends, it's interesting because there's always a conversation, especially between the United States and Europe. So you see, I mean, you've been to Paris and you see the Brooklyn style restaurants. I know, it's hilarious. And then you go to London and Bistronomy from Paris is kind of catching on there, which also has kind of some roots in Brooklyn and it's all going back and forth. And it's funny, we're expanding to London in the spring and I've been interviewing candidates and they're Which talking is what about- we talked about nine years ago, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally happening. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but they're talking about how fine dining is, is not the thing anymore. It's not what it used to be. And that's of course the same here in New York and across big cities in America. Right. Like people are getting more casual. Um, people are looking inwards. So the British chefs are looking at homegrown talent now, instead of getting really excited about the Daniel Balud restaurant that's going to open in London, they're looking at this woman who came up through the ranks of big British restaurants and is now finally opening her own thing. So I think that's really exciting for them. That's and we, interesting. we see that here too. I mean, New York is notorious for not embracing out-of-town chefs. Yes, but we've had a lot come. Uh, We have a lot come, and some succeed, but a lot do not. And I think that's happening there for the first time, where a lot of people are coming in and saying, oh, I'm I'm so-and-so, I'm Michael White, I'm opening my restaurant here. And they're like, oh, no, we have this great homegrown talent. We want to try out what they're doing. 
Which I actually think is really nice. Yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, I have to say as a snooty New Yorker and I see restaurateurs coming in from outside New York, mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, why do you think you can make your mark here just because you made it in another town? Right. And also, why not just own it? Why not be the person from Philly who's just really great and owns this giant empire in Philly? Like, I can, right. Like, why do you there. want to come here? Stay there. I'm <laughs> yeah. totally with you. And then I'll go there when I need to have that food. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you also see because of eater and mm-hmm. bloggers yeah. um, alike is that when something opens up, there's this insanity. Oh yeah. But and it, Instagram too. Right. But then it ends. Yeah. I mean, you really have to continue to you see that with keep lines that bar here. Like over this past year, there's so many restaurants that open with crazy lines and then a month later, there's no line. There's no line. Yeah. yeah. No, it is kind of fascinating. So as you, you've moved through this arena over the last decade, you know, what are some of the big mistakes you made that made you really take pause and mm-hmm. say, okay, learn from that going in this direction? Sure. I think um, sometimes we were too quick to launch in certain spaces. Like we, we have, we've grown over the years from a few sites to two dozen sites. And there was a moment in 2013 where we brought it back a little bit. So we had opened in Vancouver, Louisville, and Toronto, and we closed those sites. Um, And with Louisville, that was actually part of a sales deal why we launched that site. So we kept it going for a little while, and then we realized there wasn't enough news there. Right, I was going to say how much content is going on so that that made a lot of sense. With Toronto and Vancouver, I think we could have done it better. Mm -hmm. I think we didn't put aside enough money for those towns for to hire in Toronto was much more expensive than we anticipated. Interesting. And I think when we realized that we should have just stopped or found the money, but instead we were trying to hire someone who would be cheaper and they weren't really happy with how much they were making and they probably weren't the best person to run the site. Uh, and we got a lot of blowback in that town for hiring the wrong talent. And, um, In Vancouver, I think it was a similar situation, and it was also just too far away from um, where we were to focus on it. Like, Mm -hmm. there was too much going on. Right. Uh, So those sites never really took off. And it's something I'm thinking a lot about now with London because it's another big, new market, market. And we can't come in with the wrong attitude. We can't come in just being like, oh, here's an eater. We have to make sure that it is catering to that audience, that it's translated for that audience. They speak English, but it doesn't mean that everything's going to be the same. Completely. Um, and even just talking to candidates now about how do how do the bloggers work? How do the Instagrammers work? What is it, what's the deal with PR there? Um, like we're not going to take comps. Is that going to be weird? Or how does it all, the whole thing, just figuring out how they operate and how yeah. they write and speak and to their readers. And it's a huge city. Huge city. I mean, I do think the one thing that has been translated across all cultures, and maybe it has to do with, um, you know, just different generations, but also people want to know what they're eating. Yeah, absolutely. And they want to know um, about the authenticity of it. They want to know where it's coming from. And London is such a multicultural city, so they want to know, like, is this the recipe from someone who's attached to this country or are you appropriating this? And there's a lot of sensitivities around that. So making sure we cover that in the right way is something we think a lot about here. So we need to also think about it there. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. even from the startup world, um, as we become and have become a flatter world, mm-hmm. consumer behavior in Europe is different than consumer behavior here. Yeah. I mean, I remember years ago, 
I was coming from Amsterdam to Paris and my son and I were going to get on a train the next day. Mm-hmm. We were um, getting food for our trip. We were going to have like a picnic on the train. And we went into this, you know, it was a deli, but it was absolutely gorgeous, right? I mean, the food mm-hmm. in there was off the charts. And we ordered what we wanted, like cheese, and we got some bread. And he had behind the counter this Kobe beef. And it was so beautiful. I mean, the color, the whole thing, it was just beautiful. And I was just like, you know what? We're going to take a half a pound of that too. And he said, I won't sell it to you. What? And I was like, why? And he said, you're going to take this beef and you're going to go back to your hotel. You're going to put it in the refrigerator for your train trip tomorrow. And it's not going to be the same thing. (laughs) It's going to coagulate. It's going to get cold. This is meant to be eaten today. And, you know, I always remember that because that is how they eat in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And you deal you deal with that a little bit here with delivery startups mm-hmm. where it's you hire some third party to go to a restaurant and get you takeout and the restaurants are like, "No, this we don't deliver this for a reason because the pizza will not completely." Yeah, this is a certain style of pizza and it doesn't deliver. So what do you think of all of this delivery stuff? In terms of delivery only restaurants. I think that's a well, space all of I'm this. interested Maple to watch. and all of these delivery platforms. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the entire world went delivery. Yeah. And I know a lot of those companies raised a lot of money over the last few years, but I don't know if it's going to work out in the end. <laughs> I think maybe it's a couple of people will succeed at it, but it costs so much to costs do so much. a food. I mean, you know, to do a food startup, it's just, there's so much cost when it comes to food. And already you see with Maple, um, the quality has gone down a lot yeah. just as a customer. I used to order from them a lot. And now I'm like, I've had too many meals that are just so Doesn't interest you anymore. Yeah. And uh, now they added a delivery fee because they realized they couldn't just include it all for $12. Right. And scaling it, I think, is going to be a huge challenge for them. Right. So I don't know if well, they're going to be able to go across America. There was that leak that came out. Yeah. You know, with and their financials. With their financials. And it's just like, you know, their venture capitalist is paying for every one of your meals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you absolutely. know, and, and, and how long will that last? Yeah. So, you know, you just had a kid mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I'm curious how that has shifted your work and priorities mm-hmm. and, um, how, how has that been a difficult transition for you? It's been pretty smooth. It's, there are fewer hours in my day for mm-hmm. sure. I've definitely had to learn how to, um, squeeze everything I need to do at work into a certain time frame. Right. Like I get to work before nine, I have to leave right at six so I can relieve my nanny. Mm-hmm. And then if I need to, I can work again after he goes to bed because he's a little baby. So he doesn't stay up that late. Um, but that's definitely been a, you know, a, a learning experience for me, but it, it hasn't been so bad. I realized today that, um, I Instagram my food less. <laughs> There's no space in my life. I don't eat a meal and think like, let me pause to take a beautiful picture of this and right. edit it. I'm just like, that's out the window. Right. You're like you're moving too quickly. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't have time for that. Yeah. I'll just Instagram my kid or well, not at all. And, and, and I am going to assume that, you know, um, I mean, you're also the editor, but mm-hmm. there is flexibility in regards yes. to what your needs are there. I think working in media is a great place to be a parent. If you work at a good company, like we have, we, first of all, we have maternity leave, which, which I think is, is incredible. Key. 
Um, do they have paternity leave too? They do. They have six weeks paternity leave. And are they forcing men to take that paternity leave? I don't think so. I, I think they should. should. They absolutely should. I think that's... Um, I think that's half, the key to the future. Half the battle. Yeah. Like my husband took three weeks and I was kind of furious that like that's all he gets because not just for him, but also for me. Yeah. Like it takes some of the stress off. And Completely. Means, like we, we staggered our leave. So it meant that, you know, we got a nanny when he was four months instead of five months. I mean, instead of three months, but it would have been great if we could have been six months with him. Right. Right. Uh, because they're, they're just so little. And in the workplace, I think having been through the experience of taking three months off and now managing all these people. Uh, now, if I have someone go on maternity leave and I've had two since I've come back, I can say to them, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. You're not even, I'm not going to notice you're gone. We can take care of this. You can come back. It'll be okay. And having a male boss who's never done it, they can't give you that assurance. And the male boss might not believe that. Whereas I truly believe we're going to be fine. It's interesting. I mean, even as people, uh, startups go and pitch men who will say, you know, when do you plan on having children? Because I don't want to, you know... Right. Invest in someone who's going to be pregnant, but they have no idea. I mean, I've had founders that have had two children since they've started the business. And the truth is they're better entrepreneurs today Absolutely. than they were when they started. You know, I think you have a deeper understanding of life and how the world works and you know how to be more efficient mm -hmm. in what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a piece about maternity leave in the restaurant industry. And there was one story of a woman who she was getting investors for a restaurant and they said they were trying to write a clause into it where she couldn't have a kid within what? the first two years. Yeah. Where there was, and she was like, well, what does this mean? Like what happens if, am I going to have to have an abortion if I accidentally get pregnant? Right. What is this? What, and what are you, why are you setting the tone in this way where. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and the thing is she probably wouldn't have even taken three months because she, it was her business and she would have been so crazy wrapped up in it. She maybe would have taken a few weeks off. And it's like, just to set that tone is so absurd. Well, it's so absurd because men can't have children. Yeah. Bottom line. Yeah. You know, I mean, they can adopt, they can do surrogate, mm -hmm. but they cannot have children. Right. You know, so they have no idea like how crazy you get when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, coming back to work, I'm still breastfeeding. So doing the pumping and the pumping room, it just adds a whole level of complexity to my Completely. life. That, <laughs> that some, that I was talking to my husband, I'm like, you will just never have to deal have with that. Your life is just easier than mine. It's totally. Totally. So over the past decade and, and it, it, you really have had an incredible experience because the industry has just change mm -hmm. and you got to a really a bird's eye view. You know, what did you learn through this journey that you never thought you would have learned? I think just that there's such an insatiable appetite for all of this and that you can find new ways to grow. Like for us, you know, we, we've pretty much nailed down how to report on restaurants in a city. Like mm -hmm. I think we, we've got that down. We know how to write about restaurants in Nashville that are opening and closing and chefs moving. And then we tackled long form. And now I think we have a really good program going. Like we have the editors in place and we know how to get pitches and we know how to do a good job of that. And now video is the next thing for us. And so it's exciting for me that here's a new challenge that I don't necessarily know how to tackle. We've been trying at it for a year, but this is something over the next year that we get to experiment with more that we can try to master. And there's always going to be another thing like right. that. So there's always going to be another project or medium that we get to play with. 
Right. Um, and social media too. Like we have a growing social media team and they come in with all these new ideas about like, oh, this is how we can engage with our readers. And it's not just trying to get them to click over to our articles. It's about creating this whole new space for them to interact with Eater. So it's just great that you get to evolve as a brand. Constantly. Constantly. And, and, and evolve as a journalist. And evolve as a journalist. Like right. I have to think about how to tell good stories on video that aren't just food porn. Like we've figured out food porn. We're great at it. You're great at how food do, porn. How do we do bigger and better stories and get people to actually watch them? Right. I mean, you even see these ones on Instagram now where it's literally this less than 20 second putting something together as a meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and it's just like, wow, that is really interesting. Yeah. And when BuzzFeed created that tasty format of a top down, super fast recipe, no one had done that before, and it's this whole new thing that they invented, and now it's become the norm for Everybody. recipe sites around the world. Right. And so that, that's a really cool space to be in where you could come up with something new, a new way to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again to Amanda for joining us on the podcast this week. If you haven't checked out Eater yet, I highly recommend you do, and you can visit it at www.eater.com, and they have a variety of cities. I will tell you, I check into it on a daily basis. (laughs) Um, And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in this week. If you'd like to stay up to date with Positively Gotham Gal, please subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne.